0: Namo tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sammāsambuddhassa Buddhaṃ dhamma Sangham Here on retreat we can contemplate our relationship to everything in our life and ask, what do we cherish? We should especially ask, what qualities of the mind or the heart do we value the most? We never wish for pain or disappointment in life, but these things come And rather than be afraid of them or be negative, we can look at what blessings they bring. Even the spiritual riches that we would never be able to realize without these struggles or losses. Doing this has really helped me to contemplate why I've chosen this direction, and what makes it possible to keep going. So I'd like to share with you how that process has evolved for me in difficult times. There was a wonderful Jesuit monk from India, Anthony DeMello. Wise, funny, compassionate, a gifted visionary. And his favorite story was about a wandering monk who found a beautiful stone. And then he met a traveler. When they were sitting and having a cup of tea, the monk showed the traveler the stone. He became fascinated by it. So he said to the monk, Could I have that stone? So he gave it. And the traveler went on his way delighted, but he didn't get any special blessing from it. He felt regret that he asked for a material object. And he wished he could meet him again. One day, he met the same monk. And he said, Please, teach me what enabled you to give away This precious stone. The real gift was the gift of generosity, being able to give away something we really treasure. It's not what we give up, but that it's very meaningful to us, and we're able to let it go. In the process, by letting it go, we receive a greater joy. We're so enriched when we cherish goodness and also when we share that for someone else's happiness. That's what the Buddha is teaching us and that's what we have to do. When we first sit down to meditate, usually we're just following instructions. We may not know why we're doing it or what the results will be. What's supposed to happen? We're just following a formula and we trust it enough to take on this practice and we try it out. It's amazing how it becomes our own, how each of us discovers the way. We start to explore our inner universe and we see what is possible. Like when we first started this retreat, you may have come for a reason, but now on day six, You have a different idea about why or what you're doing here, and maybe a little more confidence. You start to be creative. If we stay present, and we really get drenched in this moment, we can experience a very different feeling, and our whole relationship to the practice can change. It would be a big mistake for anyone who becomes a monastic to think that just by shaving your head and wearing a robe, you're a nun or a monk. Because that's just the exterior. The real renunciation is much more than that. It's much more than just being able to chant in the right place or follow a formula but it really hit me profoundly and it seems to hit me more and more as I become more soaked in the Dhamma. When I left the monastic community, I thought that practicing in solitude would be very good. I wanted to be alone for one year and not have to Fulfill a formula of ritual and tasks to sit straight and look good because a lot of the times we were in the public eye. You can't just stay in your kuti in the trees and have nice sangha to sit and meditate with because all the demons and the maras that we dance with will follow us. They're sticky and they come all the way into the mind day after day, wherever we are, wherever we travel, even if we circle the whole world, you cannot get away from the suffering. Changing the players or who we live with doesn't help us get away from our suffering. I had to learn this, and it was a blessing. The whole practice really shifted gear when I started to be on my own. On the one hand, I could experience loneliness. Where were my spiritual companions? But at last... I realized that I had brought them all with me and I was not alone at all. As a solitary nun, conditions were so different. I was staying in a small, isolated coastal village and a few supporters were signed up on a rota system and there were no backups. If one of them forgot, then I didn't get anything. And for a few months, the Donna meals were pretty erratic. So I had to practice with being hungry and feeling the vulnerability of that. Sometimes I felt like a little bird. I really knew the taste of homelessness for the first time because I didn't have the security of the monastery. I had the ideal to live as a hermit, more simply and with few possessions, like my first teacher, who lived in a very austere way. But I had no idea how tough it would be. I wanted to be poor, but I didn't realize what hunger would be like. Because the monastery is well provided for. We have electricity, we have shelter, and constant support. And I thought, the real monastic way is to sit at the roots of trees and receive the alms food in your bowl every day. Suddenly, alone in my kuti, all those supports were stripped away and I had to learn how to swim in the robe. And that vulnerability brought up a lot of fear. Yet I could see the value of this hardship It forced me to lean inward on my faith in the Dhamma. People used to come and offer a meal, but one time I was horrified when the meal didn't come. There was a terrible storm and no one appeared. I panicked. I was already eating a little, and less than that seemed too hard to bear. I forgot how attached I was to this idea of practicing alone. I had so idealized that life, but when I was in it, I saw these practical aspects of getting the four requisites and what it felt like when it didn't work. I got really scared. How am I going to live like this? What's going to happen? That day there was a heavy gale. There were no cars. It was a weekend. Actually, I thought everybody had slept in and forgotten me. So it felt as if nobody cared. I tried to meditate and to practice mind over matter. I tried to force the fear away and encourage myself. I'll get through this. But it was coming from ego. I thought I could hold it together no matter what. But fear kept taking over. I thought, maybe I don't deserve to be fed, or my practice isn't up to scratch. All these habit voices crowded in, and I couldn't shut them out. Suddenly, there were steps on the stairway, and the sound of a plastic bag rustling, outside my door, and my heart leapt with gratitude and joy. Maybe they're just bringing me a bag of rice uncooked, and I'm not allowed to cook. But just the fact that somebody had come, was interested and cared, gave me strength. But I did see my faith evaporate in the jaws of fear and I saw that to survive in these conditions I had to let go all my ideas and just come down to earth and I had to feel the, the Dhamma rise up in me and make a determination to just sit and practice, even if nobody comes, I'm not going to fall apart. I reflected on how being challenged drew out a creativity and a verve to face things and to make it work. In these days and months of struggling with uncertain food and support, I would have to renew my effort and my resolve to raise up my faith and my patient endurance. These qualities that the Buddha praised so highly. And the results in my heart were palpable, because I weighed in on gratitude for what I did receive, and that vanquished the fear of not receiving enough. I was grateful for the test of my faith, because it made me stronger. It reminded me of a potter making a pot. When the clay is unfired, it breaks more easily. And I think that being put in the oven like that and having to burn in a way strengthened me. I pulled myself together. I was clinging to the practice like a life raft, and more and more turning the mind to gratitude for the teaching, to gratitude for the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. And I would chant to bless my own predicament, to drown out the old rantings of the ego, because I didn't want to forget the power of the Dhamma. So that was the obstacle I experienced during my retreat. And it was a wonderful opportunity to learn that without joy, without gratitude, and without that connection to devoted supporters, I couldn't do this hermit practice And I couldn't do it without food. We have to be fed. Maybe that's the reason that the Buddha set up this special system of our dependence for food on lay devotees. In other traditions, the monks and nuns can stay far away and live in caves. They can disappear for a long time and live like trolls in the wood. People don't even know who they are. I remember once when I was traveling in India and I was staying at a temple in a Himalayan village. One afternoon I was sitting in my room and suddenly there was a knock on the door. Some of the villagers told me that there were these yogis that lived in the mountains, and they were rarely seen. But everyone knew they were there. They might come down and collect food that people left out for them, but they never saw them. I opened the door, and there was this wild-looking man with long hair, bearded, in ragged clothes, He was just like a sadhu, a mendicant, and I knew intuitively that he was okay. So I invited him in, and I said, would you like a cup of tea? And he said, all right. I boiled the kettle, and he asked me a few questions about my practice. This was in Hindi. could speak quite a bit at that point. After a while, he got up. He didn't even take his tea. Then he paused and said, it's a razor's edge. And he left, just like that. It's a razor's edge. I know. I will never forget that and during the first year when I was alone away from the monastery I felt it. I was far from the rota to receive dana, where you always get a meal. Now there was no one nearby to feed me and I remembered. It's a razor's edge. You can't will yourself to do this from ego or by following a formula. You have to search within your heart for the strength to trust and endure even through times of such vulnerability. And we need spiritual friends. The Buddha created this connection between monastics and laity as spiritual friends to each other. So I can't do this without the food that you bring. My whole body is made up of alms food given through the kindness of people like you. All this comes in the act of giving up the world. I didn't realize the power of that renunciation. I had no idea what I was getting into. But I went in wholeheartedly. I asked to take the precepts for three months. And Sayaru Upandita, my teacher and preceptor, instructed me, in your case, for life or nothing. I was at the height of my career. And I loved my work. The Canadian government had just funded a blindness project. And my retreat in Burma was just for three months. That's it. Shave my head and see what it's like. And then Saya instructs me. You have to do it for life. I was aghast. For life? And then he said, you've had enough of samsara of the world. You've had enough. Go think about it for three weeks. So I did. And then I took lifetime vows and I thought, I'm giving up my life. I was so happy. Slowly, slowly, the honeymoon is over. And you start to find other attachments that you have to let go of. But you don't want to. So you try to fit them in somehow. At first, we're so inspired. We start out. We pick it up. And we think, yes, this is terrific. Meditation. It's wonderful. I can calm my mind. Ten-day retreat, detox. But then you go deeper. Then you break down. You burn away. You carve things out. And the melting in the mind intensifies. And so does the purification and the polishing. You keep coming to more and more retreats and you realize that you cannot do it part-time. It's as if there is no retreat. It's just life. This is it. I don't mean you all have to become monks and nuns. But we have to change the way we relate to ourselves and to life itself so that the bottom line is the purity of heart we take care of ourselves first and foremost by protecting our virtue with a pure heart with a code of behavior with right speech and right action caring Practicing kindness and wholesome thoughts to ourselves and to others, we learn. It's much more than getting the breath right, or getting a formula right, or having blissful states of mind, or even getting ordained. We learn to cherish. Ourselves and each other. So often we wear the robe to look right, to sit right, to chant right, to be accepted. Everything is about doing it right. But true liberation of the heart is deeper than that, it's a profound renunciation. You can shave your head. But if you haven't shaved your heart, it can be just like a costume. You've never really ordained. To ordain means to make sacred. It's like taking up the holy chalice. That's not part-time. Part-time leaks. Part time is like a bucket that is cracked. We have to use this holy life or the path of holiness to guard our moral integrity, to protect us from what is harmful. We no longer look with the eyes of greed, or ill will, or distorted perception. That way we will never crack. Then the chalice that we pick up will never break. I took these vows never to be given up. I took them for life to develop within myself a lifeline to the Dhamma. And it's life-saving. I was following the injunction of my most precious first teacher, a saint from the villages of northern India, who had encouraged me to take the robe. And when Sayado insisted that it be for life or nothing, I chose that out of profound faith. And through his witness, that vow, that commitment to the precepts, holds me up. Every time I had a crisis or felt that I couldn't do this, Or that I'm falling apart and can't keep going. I remembered my vows. I would just pick myself up and push. Maybe that's how people can get up a mountain like Everest. They have to push themselves to reach the peak. This is an Everest. You think it's just some 10-day retreat and you get some blissful states of mind, we're still full of greed, hatred, and delusion. As soon as we get back into life, what else can happen? What next? But to give up the comforts, we have to keep giving them up all the time. We have to examine our relationship To everything in our life. Our friends, our jobs. Our attitudes. And practice harmlessness. So going back into life. Pick it up. Pick it up the way you pick up the breath. Keep examining it. And inside that moment of experience. Even if you find anger in your heart or a pain you can find the way to approach it to resolve it to understand it to touch it with compassion that's how we treat all the precepts the Dhamma bestows integrity It makes us whole. Then the ability to renounce, to let go, happens by itself. It's not that we give things up. It's that they give us up. We remain connected to the Dhamma and we return to it again and again more purified each time. We see the genius of the Buddha to have understood this simple, profound teaching, learning how to give up, how not to cling, not even to our bodies. Otherwise, we will never find peace. When we let go, it's an act of forgiveness. We can learn this by looking into the heart with faith, knowing that even if we have to experience the darkest night of the mind, it's stormy and we have memories like a tornado. And because we're willing to be patient, we wait, we touch the breath, we connect to the darkest moment, and we come to an emptiness, the totality of unvanquished trust. Our true place of refuge is staying with the process, remembering the blessed one, what happens? We find ourselves letting go. The breath rises up to hold us. In the middle of the storm, someone comes to feed us. The mystery of that. And the willingness to endure the moment. The pure love. The pure breath. The only breath. It contains all our pain. All our sorrow. All our grief. All our anxiety. But it also contains our freedom, our wisdom, our clarity, our courage. And we can see it flow. And when it flows, we know impermanence. And that protects us. This is the way of the Buddhas. This is our way to freedom to that which we know is pure and beautiful and true.